<laughs> I, could, I could end up marrying a hooker and gambling my house away before the uh, trips even started. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this is Venom Exchange Radio in the year 2023. This is episode 12. My name is Phil Wolf, and as always, I am joined by the illustrious Mr. Nipper Reed. Hello, Phil. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I feel like it's been so long. It feels like forever. It's just been a bit of a mad time at the minute, but uh, it has. It's, it's good to be back. Good to be back. It's good to hear and see you. Well, I get to see oh. you. Other people don't. I'm privileged. Oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. I've just come back from holiday. You did. The I herping did. holiday. I had my first foreign herp trip of the year, um, which was extremely successful, i got to say. I went through, um, I'm trying to, as well as doing all the US rattlesnakes um, and finishing off the European list for everything, I want to also do all the Canary Islands endemics because I'm fascinated by the um, biology of the Canary Islands. It's such a unique habitat. Um, and every, I think there's seven islands, seven main islands, and they've all got endemics, even though they're only like two miles apart from one another and things like that. It's incredible. Um, it's a real little um, evolutionary hotspot. It's really, really cool place and as i say very few places have the, the sort of um geology and biology of the canary islands it's you know all black volcanic rock and endemic cacti and succulents it's a really really cool place to herb awesome. so yeah so ticking off the list i thought we'd do grand canaria this time which is lovely because it meant um the missus could come along and sunbathe and do stuff a nice bit of winter sun because uh, it's only it's about 90k off the coast of africa so it's you know 24 uh oh, sorry for it's 365 days a year sort of sunshine which is nice that's awesome um, yeah and i managed to get the three endemics out there very very quickly which was the um grand canary skink which is one of the most beautiful lizards i've seen uh, that's in the, the one with the blue back Blue towel, iridescent, completely oh, yeah. iridescent. Not not massive, probably six inches in total length, but yeah, just a stunning thing. You know, to see, I've got a little sort of perv on blue animals anyway. Um, you feel like we all do. <laughs> Insularis, Azureus, all of those I've, I've kept or want to keep. But uh, yeah, this this was stunning. And then you've got an endemic gecko out there, and uh, which is a tarantula, uh, and you've got an endemic. Um, they're Galatea lizards, um, and they sort of fill the ecological niche of, I would imagine, um, I'm trying to think what you've got in America that's that big. Um, like fence lizards? No, bigger. Chuckwallers, probably. Something, oh, okay. something okay. that sort of size. Well, that's um, right. It's, it's in, it's in uh, um, uh, T, uh, uh, Timon, right? Uh, is, it yeah. still, is it Timon? No. No, no, th these are sort of the, uh, feel the same equivalent niche. In Europe, their biggest lizards are Timon. 
um, okay. the Timon Nevidensis and Timon Lepidus. Um, and this is a similar size, if not a little bit bigger even, and um, sort of fills the same sort of niche. So a sort of uh, quite an opportunist, opportunistic herbivore and insect feeder as well. So um, Yeah, you were telling me about being able to watch the dynamic between the different size niche of lizard and like the larger ones yeah, allowing the uh, little ones and yeah it was it was it was a real blessing to just sort of sit and have time to sit because you know what it's like on a lot of our herp trips it's right we need to see this species right we've seen it tick right let's yeah. try to the next spot because we want this species tick but because i was on holiday and there's only three species on the island it was it was nice to just chill so i, I watched for hours and um you've got sort of like volcanic cliff faces which are like a real rusty red very sort of australia arizona looking cliff faces uh, and at the bottom of the cliff faces is obviously scree and rubble boulder piles and yeah there was a real sort of dynamic where the big um i'm presuming males maybe sexist but i'm presuming the bigger lizards would dominate on the rock face and they all had a sort of um habitat of about 10 meters by 10 meters which they would patrol and chase off anything that entered in there um and the the smaller lizards the sort of juveniles and the, the sub-adults are slightly different color they're not so red more mottled and they were in the rock piles so they were very very cryptic for the rock piles wow. as soon as the, as soon as they went up into the red sort of cliff faces you know that their their camouflage wasn't so great but there's a real dynamic in terms of size as to where they were and the the skinks again were only in the rock piles but only in the damper areas of the rock piles uh, and never the twain shall meet. They all, nobody bothered anybody else. It was absolutely fascinating to watch. That's really, awesome. really cool. Yeah, it was cool. That's super cool. And now I've got ages to my next foreign herp trip, which is in May. And that'll oh, be ages. That'll, ages. That'll be Utah. Yeah. I am, I am going out to Vegas. I'm flying into Vegas first. So um, what could go wrong? <laughs> I, could, I could end up marrying a hooker and gambling my house away before the, uh, Trips even started. That's all right. As long as you find rattlesnakes, that's all that matters. Uh, as long as I, as long as I see some bus tails, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, all exactly. is good. All exactly. is good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been good. Oh man, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Apart from I that, wish I wish I had exciting stories to talk about gallivanting globally, but I don't. So, <laughs> and uh, but we're here. What's that? I was going to say you have got other nice things to talk about because you. I uh... I do. I, I recently acquired some some baby buzz tails from our good friend Kyle the Clop King. Um, I recently uh, got a pair of, I mean they're probably eight or nine month old, uh, definitely twenty twenty two offspring, uh, Lepidus Lepidus from the Davis Mountains locality, which is super cool because I've been there and I've seen it, and that's that just makes it so much more special. Um, I'm so I got them and I've set them up and uh, recently got some black box cages. For those of you who are unaware, black box is a phenomenal enclosure manufacturer, PVC sliders, open top screen top, you name it. They make it fantastic. You know, shameless plug blackboxcages.com. Check it out. But I got some two by 18 by twos. Uh, that are going to be specifically for Montane rattlesnakes. Um, and then Kyle's cool enough. He's going to send me landscape shots of the localities of buzztails that I'm keeping nice, so that I can make the backdrops and, and do like yeah. the fake rocks and all that. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. And so I'm going to, 
basically try and do what you and Eric are doing and focus on better enclosures and, and better husbandry and not so much uh, gathering every single croat that I can get. So, but I feel like that's a really good segue to introduce our guest this episode. So our guest this episode is Mr. Saunders Drucker and Saunders is a, a globe trotting buzz tail snapping aficionado of montane deliciousness so without further ado what's up saunders uh howdy yes uh aficionado it sounds so weird to hear sometimes i just like (laughs) think of myself as you know uh a weird little like trash dirt desert goblin who's just out (laughs) (laughs) playing around in the desert um which sounds like an amazing way to spend your life it does it it's really different you know I, I was living a different life before i started these kinds of uh projects and these start these kinds of endeavors um and i think i prefer this side of it you know 100 percent, 100 percent. so roll, man can you explain i mean it, it sounds amazing how have you channeled your life so that you just grub around and look for rattlesnakes which is what i will do when i win the lottery <laughs> So I, I mean, I've always been into to herping, specifically into rattlesnakes. Um, you know, I grew up in central Texas. So West Texas was just like right out there, which is, you know, desert Southwest, the U S is just full of rattlesnakes. So they were always on my mind. Um, I went to college, I got a, a degree in biology or I got a degree in ecology. Um, and then I went off to grad school. Uh, and I was originally going to be doing some stuff with Houston toads. Um, oh, wow. Some, some monitoring on some little endangered toads here in central Texas. Um, they're pretty neat, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, like my first summer in grad school, after I started my PhD, um, I went out to the biology, the pit vipers conference, um, and spent some time out there and, I literally, uh, I just, I was like, okay, this is my favorite thing in the world. This is what I want to like do my project on. This is what I want to dedicate myself. And while I was out there, I got some ideas and I spent the the whole drive home, um, on like these, you know, back rural New Mexico highways and stuff. Uh, I'll apologize. Writing down ideas on the notes app on my phone for all these different projects. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and I don't even know if I listen yeah, to music that, on that drive. That conference is at the Chiricahua Desert Museum, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Nipper and I just went there this past June, and I can only fathom what it must be like to be there for the Pit Viper Symposium. Uh, it was incredible. I mean, there were so many just world-class scientists there. It really got my brain working. And so that whole drive home, I just like, I formulated this project to follow up on some past research, um, working on montane rattlesnakes and, as soon as I got back, I walked into my boss's office with like a proposal and a literature review. And I was like, I want to work on montane rattlesnakes. And he went for it. Um, and ever since I've been spending basically my whole summers and into the fall, uh, just wandering around uh, Southern New Mexico and Arizona. It's called living the dream. His, oh, yeah, living like, the dream. Trying God, to find I... as many rattlesnakes as possible. God, I hate you so much. That <laughs> a is, lot of people do, it seems. Well, it's, it's the weirdest thing is your job is what 
I work for so that I can go and do. It's what a great lifestyle. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I I won't say that it hasn't it hasn't uh, come with a few downsides. Sometimes it's kind of hard to maintain a normal life when you yes. disappear into the middle of nowhere with you know no cell phone service for months at a time every single year. But I I am doing what I absolutely love. I am working with my favorite organisms on earth in my favorite place on earth. And I'm going to try and do it for as long as I can, you know, That's outstanding. What an achievement. That's fabulous. Absolutely Thank you. Fabulous. So yeah. I've seen from your um, Instagram and your, your Facebook and that it's not just um, America that you herp in though, is it? You've herped quite farther afield is that part of what you're doing now or was that pre your um phd stuff that was um kind of pre phd stuff um i I haven't been out of the u.s um goodness since like 2019 or so other than just like jumping across the border in mexico to go get like tacos or something Uh, but that's a different story um but i i used to travel a whole bunch um and i really miss it and part of the reason i haven't been traveling as much recently is i started my project in 2020 uh covid went down there were two years where i i couldn't travel and then um i've just kind of been dedicating almost any free time that i've had to uh you know going out into the into southwest new mexico southeastern arizona uh just really focusing on that place but whenever i'm done with this with this project and get a little bit more free time back um oh my goodness i'm i'm gonna go all over anywhere i can anywhere i can find weird vipers weird you know uh, not just vipers you know any sorts of herbs that i can Uh, vietnam has been high on my list for a really long time so has ecuador um so has like Namibia. There's a lot of stuff in Europe I want to do. All those weird little European adders and vipers and stuff. Um, That's what I'd like to hear. Proper herping in Europe. I I, I want to. People talk all the time about like, oh, once I have free time, I'm gonna backpack across Europe and eat all the food and see all the art and the architecture and stuff. I'm like, I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, backpack across Europe and yes, eat all the good food, but just like go from viper locality to viper locality if I can and just yeah. you know see what i can find you don't have to backpack i've got a very comfortable land rover we can just drive it'll be fine no (laughs) don't say that i'll take you up on it no that's 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 great i'm always viper trips are my favorite thing and and europe has has got some stunning vipers you know particularly spain at the minute i'm on a real as everyone knows because i go on about it all the time i'm on a real spanish or iberian uh, portugal spain gibraltar trip at the minute um you know vipera latast which has just been um what's the word just been split into four subspecies now <laughs> stunning you've got uh Suwanis viper which pattern wise is, is just phenomenal um you've got all the different asp vipers then you've got some of the the montane stuff as you get further out into sort of um turkey or macedonia and turkey mm-hmm. like oh 
just insane. And then you've got all the sort of the Russian-y sort of Kaznikovi and Olovi and all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Just all stunning and very, very, you know, from an ecological standpoint, really, really similar to the sort of montane stuff that you're studying. Mm. Um, you know, same ecological niche, you know, same problems of you know very very short period above ground because of the harshness of the weather and all that sort of stuff it's fascinating absolutely fascinating you need to get out here 100%. yeah I, I i really do i'm i'll be super excited to spend a good amount of time in like a, an ecosystem or working with a taxa that i i basically know nothing about you know i've, I've read about vipera and all that stuff um in books but you know, i've never found them in the wild um, and just like that, that gap in my knowledge is, uh, really interesting to me. I want to fill that in. I want to go see what it's like over there. And the, you know, the same goes true for, you know, the montane viper radiation in like, you know, um, the Andes and stuff on like the, you know, West coast of Ecuador, uh, in Peru, um, or the, like the Western slope of the Andes, um, what, stuff what's... in what species is that oviophis and things like that that's so that's a bunch of stuff that's all recently been lumped into both drops um, right. but it used to include the genuses or the genera like bothriopsis bothrocophius um uh just weird little stuff like um uh what is it uh bothrops taniata bothrops medusa chloromelis um I think there's like an Anderson eye down there, um, both Rokophias Campbell eye, um, just all of this crazy diversity that again, I've, you know, I've never seen. And I, I love mountains and I love small vipers. And so that place is on my list. Southeast Asia is on my list. Um, South Africa is on my list, all of those cool things. Um, I don't know. I just want to go hit all of the hot spots of tiny yeah. viper diversity. I just, um, I was listening to the Herpet Culture podcast and they were reviewing a paper on the new uh, Gloidius, which is the highest altitude snake now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Gloidius, like Himalayan, Himalayansis or something like something that. Like that. Like... It, it, it's, it's named after wherever, which is really cool. It's actually named after where it was found rather than after some rock band or somebody's sister, which annoys the fuck out of me. Um, yeah, same. Or so, some actor that contributes a lot of money to conservation. Yeah. 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 Um, but that is fascinating that how high up, you know, in terms of altitude and in terms of above snow lines and stuff like that, that a viper can exist yeah. is incredible. And I think, too, that that, that species is like a, an obligate insectivore that like only yeah. eats these weird high elevation moths or something yeah. like that. Just bizarre weird ecologies like that i love that yeah but uh, yeah it's venomous it has no yeah. need to be venomous whatsoever yeah yeah it's, it's fast absolutely fascinating but yeah i 100 I, I mean i um i was i've been to that part of the world but yeah i'd love to go back and do some specific viper mm-hmm. research that'd be very cool yeah. So I know you spent some time in Guatemala and I saw some of your, you know, uh, like RFR picks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Is that as far south as you've gone in that, you know, group of animals? Uh, I went to Peru uh, 
many years ago, like with my family, I think I might've been in high school or maybe early college. Um, but that was like a, a family trip. You know, I herped while I was there, but I, you know, I had to go along with, with my family. No, right, no right. shame to my family, but you know, I would have preferred to have spent the entire trip grubbing around in the, the rainforest or something, catch as many snakes as possible. Um, but I had to, you know, hang out with the family. Um, but as far as like a really serious herping trip, Guatemala is the furthest south that I've, I've been in that area. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I, it's cool to see Guatemala, man, because a lot of people don't venture to certain countries because they think there's some kind of stigma or mm-hmm. they are weary for whatever reason or for a multitude of reasons, depending on the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so close to us and I feel like nobody herps it. And mm-hmm. the fauna is fantastic. I think what I've found about those sorts of areas um, or those countries that everybody gets like scared of Guatemala, Mexico, um, some South in Southeast Asia, like, you know, Laos and Cambodia is that there are spots in those countries that you should, especially as, you know, a, a Westerner gringo, you should absolutely not go to those places. But <laughs> right. right. If you are, you know, intelligent and, you know, you have some local connections, people who know where to go, like there's absolutely no problems with being um, down there. Uh, In Guatemala, we had to like bribe a cop and, you know, we had some weird stuff getting across the border from Guatemala into Belize. But, you know, that was the general sort of like annoyances um, or hazards that you run into whenever you're doing these weird things. trips in in foreign countries um and i think that's just part of the experience if you know what you're doing and you have connections down there then a lot of those countries are you know just as safe as traveling around a lot of different places in america i mean heck there's spots in america that i try to avoid that i probably wouldn't go to yeah Um, there's there's spots in my county that i don't go to yeah absolutely so it's all relative the uh, can I ask a question though? And yeah. if, if I'm not allowed to to ask it, I won't. But can we talk about the um, United Church of Crab? <laughs> so yeah, we can absolutely talk about the United uh, Church of Crab. So I bought this crab flag from like a beach front shack thing on the Texas coast a few years nice. ago. Um, Just as a joke with my brother-in-law. This Um, is great. And then when we went to Guatemala, I had completely, you know, unintentionally left it crumpled up in my bag. Um, And like when we got down there and I was organizing my backpack, you know, um, I found it and it just became this running joke. And so like every cool thing that we found, we like took pictures holding the crab flag with it. Um, (laughs) We also found uh, a bunch of freshwater crabs um, at this one spot in Guatemala. And so it just became this like running joke. Um, And since then, I've, you know, I've taken that, actually not that original crab flag. Unfortunately, the original crab flag got stolen with my backpack when my car got broken into, but I got a replacement. Uh, That's Um, good. And like that crab flag has been dragged all over the place with me. I bring it out with me every time I go into New Mexico and basically everyone that I herp with and camp with um, has now signed the crab. flag. Um, <laughs> That's it, man. And, That's and awesome. Going to the church of crab. Um, That's awesome. That's so just, cool. <laughs> it's just funny. And you know, 
crabs are fucking cool. Um, <laughs> they are. I love crabs. There's incredible diversity there. I wish more people were into them. Um, and we're going to keep the church of the crab flag going. Excuse me, dog. Thanks, buddy. That's awesome. I love it. Hopefully one day Nipper and I get to. And I want to sign that a, flag. Yeah. Take, Absolutely. Earn, earn our signature on that flag. That's oh, cool, man. Without <laughs> a doubt. There's some like. <laughs> There, you don't have to do much to earn a place on the crab flag. Um, I've had just like random birders that pass through that like stop to look at my hummingbird feeders, sign it and stuff. Um, but that's, you know, part of the, uh, I don't know, part of the ruse is that I'm secretly indoctrinating as many people as I can into awesome. this weird crab themed cult. That's it. I'm in it. I'm literally going to do everything in my power to support this cult. Thank you very much. We um, yes, we do take donations, uh, cash only though. That's um, fine. In, in, in unmarked envelopes with no return address. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So how did so we know how you got onto the whole PhD Montaigne Rattler thing? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go into like first of all, how far along are you? How much more do you think you have left? And then, I mean, within reason, obviously, science is ever evolving, but. Mm-hmm. Um, are you at liberty to kind of go into some of the projects and like what some of the goals are? Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's a whole bunch of stuff I can talk about. Um, so I've done three summers of data collection for the project so far. Um, I have one more left is the the plan this summer and I won't be out there as much this summer as I did, as I've been the past couple summers. Um, but I'll go out for a, a stint in May, um, May to June and then, little bit of August and September as well, uh, just when the weather is good. But I'm hopefully in the the process of kind of wrapping up the PhD. My current aim is to graduate fall of 2024, spring 2025, um, if I can't make that deadline, which is determined by, you know, all sorts of stuff, data processing, working with my committee, like it's, it's an ever evolving thing. Who knows? Maybe it'll take even longer. Um, but I've been working on it for, for three years. I'm starting to get some data and some results back. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not ready to be done with the project or the lifestyle. Uh, I am ready to be done with grad school. Um, (laughs) uh, grad school is, you know, I guess you got to get through it to, to get that PhD, but uh, it's, you know, a lot of stress constantly. And I know um, I often like portray my, my life as like, Oh, adventuring around the desert, doing all this crazy stuff constantly. Um, But I spend the other, you know, eight months of my year uh, sitting in front of a computer, analyzing data and, um, analyzing data and writing papers. Uh, it's not nearly as fun as uh, the winters are not nearly as fun as the summers. Let's put it that way. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, so what exactly is the project? I know you have to do with, with mm-hmm. temperatures and, and then if do you mind going into like some of the locality stuff and then obviously the species that you're focusing on. Mm-hmm. So I am studying the effects of wildfire and climate change on the natural history and populations of rattlesnakes. Um, I'm working in 
Southeast Arizona and Southwest New Mexico, basically on every species I can find. Um, so I'm working on uh, banded rock rattlesnakes, Crotalus lepidus clobberi, Northern blacktail rattlesnakes, uh, Crotalus molossus. Um, I have two tiger rattlesnakes for my project. I, I probably won't determine any trends for them, but you know, I took data on them. Uh, Western diamondbacks as well, Crotalus atrox, and then uh, ridge-nosed rattlesnakes, Crotalus willardii obscurus. Um, and there's been a bunch of research done, particularly on um, uh, clobberi, molossus, and willardii. They're like a really good kind of trio for studying effects in uh, montane ecosystems. Uh, a lot of work done by like Matt Good. Andy Holy Cross, uh, Dave Preval, though he mostly worked on um, twin spots. Um, and I am following up on some of the trends that they found, as well as implementing new methods to look at the effects of fire and climate change on how rattlesnakes are doing in that area. Um, I so far have worked a little bit in the Chiricahua Mountains, Pelincio Mountains, um, and I've got some data from the Animus Mountains, but I'm not, uh, I don't get to go there by myself, unfortunately. Very cool. Now, is it, is it a vast difference in what you're noticing from lowland areas or lower elevation into these higher alpine and subalpine ecosystems? And is it, how do I phrase this? Is there specific types of fires and normal annual burns and whatnot that are specific to Sky Islands and higher elevation climate and subalpine climate? Or is it just kind of like this is happening and it, it happens to go up the mountain? So we are seeing overall a general trend of aridification in the Southwest. Um, Southwestern New Mexico, southeastern Arizona are heavily reliant on uh, these summer monsoon systems. If you've ever herped that area, you know that you're waiting for the rains. Usually in August, these big monsoon rains come. Um, they, at least in some mountain ranges, are kind of like clockwork, like 1 p.m., 3 p.m. hits, and it just starts pouring like crazy. Um, but what we've seen from climate data is that the consistency of the monsoons is kind of breaking down. Um, this summer we had a fantastic monsoon season. It was rainy as hell. Um, I was stuck out in the mountains for like on a week and a half, couldn't get out because all the roads were flooded. Um, but like the previous few years, two years that I've been working, um, monsoon had been super small, not that effective. And that's kind of a trend that we're, we're seeing is generally airification. Um, this aridification also manifests itself in um, more intense and habitat changing fires. Uh, so wildfire is a natural part of almost every single ecos terrestrial ecosystem on earth, um, you know, besides like Antarctica, you know, nothing's burning down there. Um, but everywhere that has vegetation to burn has some sort of fire regime. Um, and in the Southwest, there is a healthy fire regime, but whenever European people colonized the continent, they suppressed fires, they introduced a bunch of cattle, changed the ecosystem. And so now what we are getting is 
instead of like these regular um, healthy fires that move through the ecosystem, we get periods of fire suppression followed by these massive, super hot, um, like stand replacing fires. Um, I work in the Pelencios uh, for most of my project. Um, and this year, May 27th, uh, massive fire, like 7,000 acres or something um, burned through there. And all of these areas that used to be like a, a forested hillside, uh, you know, these big stands of Chihuahuan pines, um, all of that has, has burned. Those trees are dead. Um, and those areas that were forested are now being converted to like sort of rocky, shrubby, um, kind of grassy hills. Um, and after the fires, there's a bunch of rain that washed a bunch of soil off of there. So basically areas of forest are being converted to areas of grass and shrubland. Um, and we are seeing a mixed bag of effects on the species that inhabit those areas. Um, like Crotalus atrox, um, it loves shrubby, grassy little hills like that. Um, so they seem to be moving up in elevation into these areas where they were frequently less common. Um, Blacktail rattlesnakes, they're super generalist. Um, they, you know, will occupy just about any kind of habitat, but, you know, um, super intensely burned areas, they're not as much a fan of. Um, I found that the banded rock rattlesnakes, they, provided that they can survive the fire, that they can get into the refugia, they don't really mind if it's like forested or rocky. They occupy a wide variety of these habitats as long as there's rocks for them to go and hide in. Um, but they are kind of taking a hit from the change um, in the consistency of the monsoon. Without any good rain, they're breeding less often, their body condition is a little bit less. Um, and then stuff like, you know, the super endangered New Mexico originose rattlesnake, Crotalus willardi obscurus, um, it is heavily reliant on like these densely forested hillsides and canyon bottoms. And when you get a big fire that moves through um, and changes all of that to like rocky, scrubby, grassy hills, um, they are just getting obliterated by it. If they don't die in the fire itself, um, then they, you know, have less suitable habitat. Um, and we're basically seeing a, a conversion of the Pelencio mountains from a more kind of mix of high elevation grassland and forested canyons, forested hillsides to, you know, one of those mountain ranges that is, you know, rocky and scrubby and it still has snakes, but, um, it's losing the habitat specialist. Yeah, that it's, it's not the same. And the, the same trend has been shown for the Animus Mountains, which is much bigger and it will hold out for longer. But even there, there's these big stand replacing fires um, and they have documented declines in populations of, of Obscurus um, from the breakdown of the monsoon and change in habitat. So is it, is it fair to say that it is the habitat that segregates the different species of rattlesnake rather than the altitude? Um, I would say both. Both. Um, 
with the altitude, for one, you get changes in habitat. Um, altitude determines what kind of plants are growing where. Uh, it also determines like the, the temperature envelope. Um, and there's massive overlap with a lot of them. Um, but habitat, elevation, and through elevation, you know, temperature regime is probably the, the big determinant of what lives where. And you, you mentioned that the snakes that survive aren't in great condition. Um, presumably that the fires have a, a much greater effect on the, the smaller sort of lizards and, and stuff like that. How, how are, are they bouncing back for want of a better word or are they being decimated as well? At least from the fire this summer that I saw, um, immediately post fire, there was like nothing alive in the burn scar basically. Um, other than insects, there was like a crazy boom in like wood boring beetles immediately following the fire because there's all this new dead wood. But it, I went like three or four weeks post fire before I saw any lizards of any kind in the burn scar. Um, and then I started to see, you know, as some plants started to come back, um, I was seeing like whiptails and stuff. Um, but there was definitely a period where, you know, you could tell that there was not as much life in that area. Um, and a lot of it for the snakes, um, even if they survive the main fire, um, you know, there's no more tree cover, uh, soil has washed out, uh, because of the, you know, blackening of the soil from all the soot, it's a lot hotter in the burn area. Um, and for like a tiny little rattlesnake species, like a banded rock rattlesnake or a willer die, um, they desiccate super easily. Um, they are, they need refugia that they can go into and, you know, keep themselves a little bit humid. And if you lose that, then they start getting super stressed. Um, and if that stress doesn't kill them this year, maybe it prevents them from breeding that year. Um, and so next year you don't have any babies to replace, you know, animals that might die in winter or be predated upon. Um, and it's just like all of these little stressors, uh, accumulating over time. Uh, and we can see that in the, the body condition of snakes. Um, the body condition of banded rock rattlesnakes in the Pelincios has declined significantly and pretty steadily for the past Oh my goodness, almost 30 years now. Um, data set I have goes back to like 95. Wow. Um, wow. And it's, it's, it's subtle, but you know, it's, it's happening. Um, yeah. If you're noticing, if you're weighing animals and they all weigh the, around the same weight and next year they're all a little less and the year after that, they're all a little less and the year after that, you know what I mean? It, it, it the evidence is there. Yeah. So, and I, I, I don't quite have the data for this, but my suspicion is that like banded rock rattlesnakes, clobberi, they, they occupy some crazy arid, super rocky, nasty little mountain ranges. Um, and so I think that eventually they will probably kind of bounce back um, in that area and end up being all right, maybe a little bit change in their ecology. But at the moment we're seeing, at least with the Pelincios, the conversion of it from a more forested uh, sky island like the Chiricahuas or something into one of these smaller, hotter, more arid mountain ranges. Um, and the, the snakes are taking some time to adjust to that, it seems. Yeah. 
Maybe so they'll bounce back. Yeah. yeah. In in terms of a percentage of the mountain, for want of a better mm. word, when these fires occur, what is the burn ratio of how much of the mountain is actually destroyed by the fire? So, at least with uh, the southern Palencios, which is what I feel most qualified to talk on, um, and the Palencios are like a 300 mile long mountain range. Um, I, I don't work at all in the northern stuff, but the southern portion, um, I don't know, maybe like 15% of it, eh, maybe less, maybe like 10% of it burned in the fire this year. But there's another fire in 2019, the um, Miller fire um, that burned probably 10% as well. Um, and back in 2011, there was the Maverick fire, which burnt 10%. Uh, and with each of these, we've seen um, decline in forest coverage of the mountain range. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of bit by bit, it seems. And obviously you're, you're working actively on this and I'll preface with no one's denying climate change at all, mm-hmm. but I will ask how many, how many, how do I phrase this? Is there an annual natural or even human influenced burn that is consistent with things? Like for example, I live right next to the Everglades and there are certain areas of Everglades where it burns every mm-hmm. single year. Sometimes it gets really crazy out of control because of our highway systems that we put in and, you know, the planet getting hotter and what have you. But other times it's just a little tiny dinker fire because it's normal and like nobody even tries to put it out because it's completely natural. How much of that annual burn is there supposed to be or should, for lack of a better word? Hmm. So I... uh... I guess I should preface this. I, I am not anti-fire at all. I actually, I used to work in Florida doing prescribed burns at a research station called Tall Timbers. Uh, I've got a background in fire. Awesome. I, I really enjoy it. And fire absolutely needs to be used as like a management tool on these landscapes. There is a healthy fire regime that we need to return to. Sure, sure. Um, but um, I think it kind of comes down to like time of year and intensity of the burn. The past couple of fires that have been the Palencios have been in like May and June and July when it's crazy hot, all the vegetation is dry and dead. And so the fire itself is super intense, probably hotter than it should be. Um, there's, I, I think probably a little bit more intelligent, fire management that could be done, you know, burning at times of year when the fire intensity would be much less, uh, it would kill, it would top kill less trees. Um, and that's what I would like to see. The problem with at least these super remote areas is that they kind of just respond to fires whenever they happen. Um, there's a lot of human caused fires out in this region. Um, and when one of those sparks up they're general plan i mean because it's a very uninhabited areas they just kind of let it burn out they watch it um but they they let them happen um and, and i i don't want to say necessarily that i disagree with that but i don't know maybe we need to start burning in you know the fall or something when there's 
more green vegetation, the fire intensity is less. So we can get good regenerative burns rather than these habitat changing stand replacing fires that we have been getting. It's fire is not bad. It just the wrong kind of fire, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Uh, I think to kind of expand my question a little bit, uh, is there a, like you'd mentioned, say mountain a mm. gets every year it burns 5% and mm. mountain B every year burns 5%. But every year since you started looking now it's mm. 7% and 8%. Now we're at 10%. Mm. How much difference does that play a role in the landscape itself? I mean, look, I, mean I don't know if that's, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this through your observations over the past several years doing your research is there more damage being done because of human issues whether it be climate change or campers or people like me flicking a cigarette out the window opposed to the natural lightning strikes and rock slides and whatever else it does kind of seem to be um that case. I, I can say that there is a definite change in the overall habitat um, happening in, in these mountain ranges. Um, when I was out there this summer, um, immediately post-fire, I ran into some other researchers who had been doing um, like forest monitoring, specifically like tree kill monitoring um, from fires in that region. And they showed me uh, their project was like they had these specific photo sites where they took like the same exact photo over you know years um, and they're showing me like photos from 15 20 years ago when you know this hillside was just covered in large mature pine trees um, and then you know over time there just been so many burns and like now that hillside was you know a little bit of manzanita and oak scrub with some grass between it um and so I even, oh, i'm sorry go ahead i know, just um th there are some people who would say like oh well it's converting back to what it's supposed to be but uh, i don't know if i quite agree with it um whether it's specifically human caused or not or human intended uh we are seeing a change in habitat in those mountain ranges yeah. Um, away from more denser, mature forests. Now, in your observations of some of these areas that have been converted from subalpine, you know, coniferous stuff to grassland, stepland stuff, mm. is it that the stepland ecosystem grows in before the coniferous stuff has time to? Yeah. Yes. Um, like if there wasn't, all, if there wasn't cattle grass growing, covering up the sun from these little pine cones that want to grow, but they're little pine cones, they don't have the time or the light to do it. And then all of a sudden cattle grass comes in. It's like, well, there goes the pine cones. Yeah. Um, there's, it's also a little bit less of like the grass moving in, but um, more like the, the methods of seed dispersal. So at least post fire this year it burned like crazy and then it rained like crazy and literal tons of soil 
uh, were being washed off of these mountainsides. It was all over the road and stuff. It was filling up the creeks. Like the amount of erosion post fire was incredible. And whenever that soil goes down, it takes with it the seed bank um, of those conifers, like those pines, um, those junipers. Um, and then even like the oaks, the seeds that have been sitting in the soil waiting to spring up post fire or new seeds that were dropped by pines before they burnt. Um, all that seems to be just like getting washed away down into the canyon bottoms and then out into the plains and stuff. Um, but then you have, you know, wind dispersed grass seeds that blow in from everywhere and colonize. And it's just, that's what's left. Um, yeah. And then um, grasslands themselves are also like more prone to low intensity, more frequent fires. Um, and so then they burn again and it kills like whatever small sapling had started to come up again. And it, it forms like a positive feedback loop. Yeah. For, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. 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 Um, Oh, and it's difficult sucks. to stop. And I, I'm not yeah. an expert. I don't exactly know how to, to do it. I'm, I'm just out there trying to document the changes. Sure, sure. And again, I wasn't trying to say one thing or another. I was just curious as to your observations of, you know, mm. what what is really, what do you think is really happening and how much of it is mm. supposed to be like that and how much of it is us messing it up, you know? Yeah. So it's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. I think when we were in uh, Arizona recently, uh, there are these beautiful fields, of millions of acres of grassland. And I think it was mm -hmm. Dustin uh, Grand telling us that whatever field we were driving through, none of that grass is native. And mm -hmm. they have all the, the, the lightning spotters out in the fields on their big trucks with like stands in the back of them. Because that grass is not native, they have to have firefighters watching for lightning so they can immediately put it out because like you were saying, it's it's so much faster burning. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense, man. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So and when I, you're sorry, so when you're out um surveying, mm -hmm. what sort of numbers of snakes are you actually seeing on, on a daily basis? Is it you're seeing one or two specimens or have you got areas where there are a lot it i mean it definitely depends on time of year i mean i have gone like my first summer i went a full month without encountering a snake um oh, wow. on my days and, i would have know, just given up and gone home wow granted that was like you know between like june 25th and july 25th so like the hottest driest time of year i i shouldn't have been out there it's not good for snakes um but then like once the monsoon season rolls in and activity starts picking up, um, I don't know, you can, you can kind of guarantee one or two snakes a day. Usually it, it might just be like a black tail or something, um, which are super common out there. Um, but if you know the kind of habitat that you're looking for, you know, or you've started to learn some of the activity patterns, um, you can get a black tail a day. Uh, banded rock rattlesnakes clobber eye they they seem to have like these really definite activity patterns um um and i've also found that it seems like different hillsides even hillsides that are like 200 meters apart like one will turn on for like three days and i'll find like four or five snakes up there and i'll be checking both of them and like 
I found five snakes here, but like this hillside that's just a little bit over, nothing. And then it'll like switch. And then all of a sudden they'll be here and not on the other one. I don't know exactly why those weird little activity flutters happen. Um, maybe it's yeah. like a feedback loop. Like they, you know, one gets active and then the others smell its chemical, um, like pheromones and stuff. And they decide to come up. Um, but if you start to kind of learn those trends, like, I don't know, you can, you can find one, uh, basically every single day. Uh, if the conditions are good, if conditions well, are bad, then, you know, hang out at camp and, uh, <laughs> yeah. read a book or something. Can I be so bold as to ask, are you specifically looking for animals uh, that are naturally uncovered or are you flipping like a true herper and going digging? I'm, I'm doing I'm, everything. Okay. Cause I was going to say is I didn't know if, if you flipping a rock and finding a club underneath, mm-hmm. if that is truly, how do I phrase this? If that would be an adequate data for your work because you unearthed it you know what i mean and i didn't know if your work you had you had to see it on the move or you had to see it basking or you had to see it hunting you know what i mean well so um i can include both of them in my study but they get classified as different you know so i'll list like one is like oh this was an active snake out in these conditions versus this was a snake that you know was in refugia that i uncovered um Okay. And so both are useful, but you get different data from, from each, you know? Yeah. Um, it's better to it's find super... everything opposed to only finding half. Yeah. If it's, well, if it's super hot and dry out and I find like, oh, I'm finding snakes under logs or under rocks and stuff versus, oh, it's been rainy and it's a little bit cooler and I'm finding them out on the move. Like that is, you know, that is data. That's extra data. Yeah. Um, most of my snakes I find, uh, I don't think I have randomly flipped a snake in the Pelham was in a very long time. Well, actually, so that's not true. Um, two years ago, I was out there and I walked up to this really nice rock pile that I had my eyes on, but it had never produced a snake. Um, I had two friends with me. Um, and as I were walking up to the rock pile, I was like, okay. And I don't know why I thought I was bold enough to call it. Um, but I said, okay, there is a snake in this rock pile. We just have to find it. Um, we walk up, look over this rock and there's this big, beautiful male, uh, clobber eye sitting right up on top of a rock coiled up. Um, and you know, it was awesome. We were all psyched. Um, and he was sitting on top of like this big, nice flat rock. And so, you know, we caught him, I had him under a hat before we were going to do our processing stuff and take photos. And, uh, I said to the people with me, I'm like, all right, watch, there's probably a female underneath this rock. And I lifted the rock and sure enough, um, there was a big, beautiful female that I assume he had been breeding with who was coiled up like in the exact same spot, but just underneath the same rock. That's the only snake that I've randomly, um, flipped, but I guess it also wasn't you know random. There was a snake that I found just above it. That's awesome though. Is that, um, I think I've seen your shot of that club with like on top of the rock with the mountainscape in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, that oh. that wasn't that one. That might have been a, a different one. I don't know. I found okay. so many of them out there, but just <laughs> yeah. Most most of my encounters like that are are visual encounters, and that is my absolute favorite way to find any kind of snake, especially rattlesnakes. If I can find a rattlesnake that's like coiled against a rock in ambush position or something, 
to see them in situ, especially before they buzz me. So that was, that was actually wow. before I ever started my project. That was my, Oh wow. That was the first club I ever found in the Pelencias. Um, actually, this, I'm sorry. This is the photo I was thinking of that one. Oh, that's not, that's, that's in a whole different mountain range. That wasn't even for oh, okay. my project. That was just, uh, that was just hurting. I was just having fun. Um, awesome. That awesome. snake buzzed at me from a rock pile. Uh, like so many of them, you know, a lot of it is you just kind of walk around with a big stick and like tap rocks and stuff. And oh, yeah. Um, which is so nice. It's so uh, considerate of them to tell me where they are. Exactly. It, honestly, <laughs> the USA is easy herping because none of our snakes make any noise and you yeah. have to flip everything. <laughs> so I got to ask, are you at liberty to say how many Obscurus you've actually seen? I've seen one. I've seen oh, one, and it took still... me five years. Wow. 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 Um, one it's one more than nipper and i <laughs> yeah it's a uh, i that snake and the, the, the words i guess kind of gotten out now so i i was really secretive about it for a, a long time um i guess i can talk about it a little bit more that it, that snake is like it does i don't classify it the same as like any other animal that I've tried really hard to find growing up, you know, I grew up in Texas. I really wanted to find an indigo snake. And, you know, I went out cruising a whole bunch for them and hiking. And for years I had thought that I had put effort into finding an indigo snake. I thought I had tried hard. And then I went and I tried to find an obscurus in the U S and Jesus Christ. I mean, that's awesome. It's it's funny because I'll talk to other herpers uh, about it, and they're like, "Oh my goodness! Like, this brings me so much hope. Like, I'm so psyched for it." And it's like, no, I, yeah, I have <laughs> spent literal months straight alone out there, hiking every single day through crazy backcountry, like hitting every single pocket of habitat that I can find. Waking up in the morning hiking all day, going to bed, wake up the next day, hike all day, go to bed and doing that. Like literally, I mean, for years, every single summer months away from home, months away from my family and friends in a place with no cell phone service, living in the mountains, doing just that. Um, and I've seen one and it was just, I don't want to say a, a fluke or random, but like, no, it was right, right place, right time. Yeah. If I'd chosen yeah. a, a different Canyon that morning, I, I wouldn't have found it. I would never would have found it. And I've gone back to that spot and like been really quiet and been like, okay, is it still hanging out there? And no, I've never seen it again. Um, wow. That That's what really spins me out sometimes about herping. Mm-hmm. It really is right place, right time. Yeah. And you, you can put in, I mean, I don't even want to talk about blotch snakes because it's just depressing me. <laughs> but, mm. um, you know, you'll get a birder that has absolutely no interest in reptiles whatsoever. will be looking at some shitty little brown wren or something like that. And one mm. will crawl right past them and they'll get amazing photographs. And yeah, Can someone ID this snake for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you'll get people like yourselves um, that's put in so many hours to find a particular species. 
and you just can't find it. It's it's soul destroying. But how yeah, good did it how good did it feel when you saw it? <laughs> I, I I screamed, I cried. Um, That's it, man. Funnily enough, like I took my photos, I took my data from it, and I I think I only spent like fifteen minutes with the animal itself. Oh. Um, Oh. I, I, I had the permits to hold on to it for 24 hours to take it back to camp and stuff. But I was just so they're, they're so sensitive. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure that it did not leave that Canyon that I do did not disturb it enough. I want it to be there. I want to be able to find it again in the future. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, I could have held on to it for, 24 hours and I, I spent 15 minutes with it took my data took some photos and released it as soon as I could um and like I don't, whenever people you know again they're like oh that looks like so hopeful I my final tallies for it uh 607 miles hiked to find it which wow. is pretty wow. close to the actual distance from if I had just walked out my front door right now to where I had found it, I think like the straight line measurement from my house to where I found it is something like 658 miles or something like that. So it's basically, you know, if I'd walked from here to there Um, and then 157 days of searching, that's not, um, that's not, 157 like days spent out there that is the active time that i spent awake looking for wow that species of snake awesome Um, and you did it and you got it you got it i did um it it was my my entire life is is paired into before and after I, I <laughs> that's that awesome. That um, awesome and it's really nice because like now i can now i can think about other things again I, you know I, can, <laughs> I completely get it as i say yeah, yeah. blotch snake i've got well now i've got four because they've just split another bloody lizard i've got four <laughs> species left in europe and i know blotch snake will be oh. the last species and just trying to find it, you know, mm-hmm. I see so many pictures of people that are not interested in snakes. Oh, they've just found this in my garden or whatever. I cannot find it. It's a really hard snake. So I, mean, I, I completely get what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, if I just wanted to see one, I, I could have hopped across the border to Mexico um, and gone to space places where you can find like 15 of them in a day or something. Yeah. Um, but it's just... No, I, I could put, again. You could. I could go to Turkey and, and tick it off quite, quite easily, mm-hmm. but it's not in yeah. Europe. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, as I said, without keep going on about it, it's like when we found the um, Sonoran um, coral snake. Mm. You can't. You, you can't go out and look for that. It no. was just really lucky. It, mm. You know, it's monsoon. It came out. We mm-hmm. was in the right place at the right time, but. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I've still not is... seen a, a Sonoran coral. I've seen a DOR, but I've I've tried a whole bunch to try and get one. It's the same thing. I just yeah haven't been just... in the right spot at the right time. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Now, have you found uh, Willard Eye, Willard Eye, and mm-hmm. Prize Eye? Oh yeah, yeah. It, um, so, so can you say with confidence that Obscurus in the United States is probably the hardest species? Oh, without a doubt. 
Like, um, I mean, of, of all herbs, like that you've gone looking for. Of all herbs that I have gone looking for, it is absolutely like the, uh, the hardest one to find. There are other species out there that are probably more rare, but there's like a weird kind of Venn diagram of like rareness to ability to find. Like you take mm-hmm. something that's like hyper specific, like um, uh, what is it? Um, West Virginia cave salamander. Um, okay. Well, Gyronophilus. Um, it only lives in like a single cave. And so it's super rare. But if you go to that cave, you're almost guaranteed to yeah, find one. Yeah. Um, well, it's like me and Eastern coral snakes. So I've mm-hmm. never found an Eastern coral snake in the wild ever uh ever birders find it people pull them out of their pool that's like a mile down the street from my house mm-hmm. i've never found one but i stopped looking because mm-hmm. i in my, it's it's like the sonoran it's like it ha- you have to be right place right time i'm gonna stop looking and as soon as i stop looking one will mm-hmm. happen to slither across the sidewalk when i'm walking my dog yeah obviously not the case with the obscurus <laughs> and, and i i had thought and gotten so inside of my head for a long time that it was just me and that it wasn't actually that hard, but I was just bad at it. Like I would never yeah. be able to, to, you know, spot a will or die. And so in this summer I went over to the Wachukas and I was like, okay, I need to make sure that I'm like capable of seeing one of these things. And, you know, went to like places where they're known from um, and was like, Oh, here they are. Like I found it. It's the same exact thing. I do know what kind of habitat I'm looking for. I do know how to spot them. I have the search image. Um, but at, at least in the Pelincios, they are just crazy rare. I, over in the Animus, I guess that they're a little bit more common, um, but it's completely private and, you know, yeah. um, inaccessible to everybody. But even there, they've been documenting declines and it is apparently less, uh, easy to find them than it used to be. Um, but a, a Palencio Obscurus, I think that there's only something like 34 official ones um, recorded wow. for wow. the entire time that people have been working and hanging out in that mountain range. And a lot of people go there. A lot of herpers go there every single year. A lot of birders go through. And you know, I talk to random birders if they've ever seen this weird snake and I think that they are just as rare as everybody is afraid that they are. Um, It's hard to find one. You can go put yourself in habitat every single day for years and maybe you'll get one. Maybe you won't. Yeah. I I always find it interesting when, you know, there's a lot of animal species. There's a lot of plant species that are protected and Mm -hmm. usually they're protected for a, specific reason you know Mm. and there's so many that are not and it's Mm -hmm. it's simply because no one took the time to really do a survey or Mm -hmm. the law is really old and nobody feels like changing it because if it ain't broke don't fix it um Mm -hmm. and then you get a species like that and you can totally see why it's protected Mm -hmm. that's just it yeah yeah and i i mean it would not surprise me at all if nobody ever found a Pelencio Obscurus again, like if it just never happened, I don't think that that's the case. I think other people probably will. Um, but if it just never happens, like I would not be surprised at all. Um, we are going to see that subspecies go extinct. It'll 
first in the Palencios, then the Animus, and then probably in the Sierra San Luis. Um, as these trends increase, like, you know, some people have said, you know, 2050, I think that's a bit soon. Some people have said 2080, that's, I don't know, we'll, we'll see what happens between now and, and 2080. But a lot of those short range endemic montane species that are heavily reliant upon specific temperature regimes, specific weather patterns like monsoons. Um, if it gets hotter and the monsoon breaks down, you know, we're going to see a lot of stuff just get more and more rare. Um, I mean, heck that they've documented pretty crazy declines for a uh, price eye twin spots uh, in the Chiricahuas um, and changes to habitats and stuff. And you can still go up into the Chiricahuas and find a whole bunch of them, but no, you can't. No, no, <laughs> you cannot. That's, that is what I thought, and then I stopped going to the places that everybody told me to go to, and I, I trusted my instinct for you know habitat, and was like, oh, here they are. Um, that's all I can say. That, that, that's that's so. This is a little bit of sidebar um, advice for like every single herper: stop going where people tell you to. Yes, yeah, like shout. Just learn about the species, figure out what kind of habitat that it likes um, from the the literature. Use your brain. And when I, I, I tried and failed to find a price eye for years, going to like the exact spots that people were like, oh, you go here, you can't miss one in multiple different mountain ranges. And it was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Um, and then I stopped listening to them and I just drove until I saw some good habitat and in two different mountain ranges that I've done that, like found one within 10 minutes whenever I stopped wow, listening Jesus. to people. <laughs> oh, oh God, I think I couldn't hate him any more than I do. But... I know. Just press stop and record. Thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're done here. We're done here. Oh man. Well, it's, I keep telling Nipper, it, I'm glad we didn't find one that trip. Because that's mm. not an excuse to go back. Oh, 100%. It's still, you know? even in that area, there's still yeah. so much stuff I want to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, I know we were very lucky with what we did see, but there's, there's, yeah. still, a, there's still a lot in that area I'd love to see. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can't have a bad day hiking for weird little mm. montane rattlesnakes. You can have right. a bad day road cruising. You can have a bad day flipping. And I've had bad days road cruising and bad days flipping, but if I'm out hiking in habitat, even if I don't find anything, like I'm I'm having a good time and it's worth it to be out there. Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. So talking of hiking and herping, mm. What is on your list that you are desperate to see that you haven't found? I mean, I know you found the Holy Grail, but what else is uh, on your list? So, at least in the U.S., um, Cerberus. And I've, I have failed for Cerberus like five or six times. And oh, right. It's because wow. I keep going back to the same <laughs> damn spot that people have been telling me. And I haven't, I I haven't been to look for them in these past two years i just been too busy and too obsessed with a different weird rare rattlesnake um but this summer when i go out i'm gonna go target them and i'm going to find my own spot and stop going where people have told me and i wager i'm gonna find one um serbs are one i need i still need to go look for like 
specs and basically everything in California, the whole Great Basin uh, complex, Lutosis, yeah. Midget Fade, it's all of those. I've, I've spent a lot of time looking for <laughs> some very specific yeah. stuff and I've kind of ignored other things. So there's all of these other Western rattlesnakes that I need to go see and that I'm excited to see. Um, I really want to go down into to Mexico a whole bunch. You know, Mexico is a holy grail of herping. And I've, again, I've, I've been so focused that I've ignored other places. Um, outside of there, like, you know, getting further, getting weirder. Um, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, proto-bothrops, um, proto-bothrops and ovophis. Those I just absolutely yeah. love. Um, and I want to go try really, really hard for them of like as many species in both of those genuses as I can find. Um, and then basically anything down in like Latin America and the tropics. I love it down there. Cause like even every time I go down there, I find all of like this weird little bycatch and some bizarre little colubra that I'm like, I didn't know that existed, yeah. but it's incredible. And I, I just want more nights like that. I want more nights, more humid nights in the jungle, finding weird stuff that I didn't know it existed. Like that's, here, here. I, I love that. I love that. Here, here. Hundred percent. I mean, as, as you as you know, I'm super excited to go to Utah mm. because, as you say, there is such a very small area with such a lot of great subspecies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just cannot wait. Midget faded. I'm fascinated by. I think it's such an incredible. I know you want to see mitosis and stuff like that but midget faded is so yeah. high on my list of things to say it's incredible yeah i gotta go see them i mean i, I want to see every single rattlesnake in the u.s um like everybody else yeah. um so now i gotta get started on a whole bunch of other stuff i'm also like i'm not just a snake nerd i'm a bird nerd and a cactus nerd and orchid nerd uh, and thankfully a lot of the same places that are like really good for for rattlesnakes are really good for all the other stuff that I get super yeah. fascinated by. Oh, hundred percent. And yeah, my house is full of cacti from around the world, <laughs> which has somehow found its way into my luggage and things. Um, <laughs> I've, I've done all of the UK orchids. I've done quite a lot of the European orchids. I think we're all quite, we're all the same. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I love, I love those, groups that are full of just weird biodiversity you know orchids like there's what like 48 or forty-one thousand species or something that's just mind-boggling to me yeah um yeah so i want to go see a whole bunch of them guatemala was fantastic for that the oh, birds and orchids in guatemala cool. were mind-blowing that's awesome that is incredible yeah um is there anything that's really common in the United States that you haven't seen? Have you got a species that everybody's seen and you just luck out on it all the time? Uh, I mean, Cerberus. I guess there's, yeah. there's quite a few. Cerberus is one. They're not yeah. that hard to find. I mean, They're easy. I mean, what did it take us? 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, and I just keep striking out. Um, hey, Nipper, was Pen- in the, Nipper was in the United States less than two hours and he found a service <laughs> um, uh, i mean i'm with y'all too on sonoran coral snake and eastern coral snake I, I lived in florida for like two years and i saw one 
eastern coral snake disappear off a sand road in my rearview mirror and that's the only look that i'd gotten of one i'd like to go find another one of or go and try my hand at those again um yeah there's got to be some weird common stuff i mean basically i i've never herped california um so all of the common stuff over there um i failed on at least around here i'm trying to think of like what i've got is like a, a white whale around here um Nah, there, there, there's not really much here in central Texas. I need to go get Texas garter snakes, which are a, a weird little endemic subspecies. Um, I've tried for them a few times, but it is just, I don't know, wrong conditions or something. I did something wrong. Um, but I would say at least at this moment and until the season starts again, I'm really excited to not have an obsessive uh, target. <laughs> yeah, It's really great. good. I, I haven't been this clear-headed in years. It, it, it makes for a completely different time out in the hills, completely different. And you'll find so much stuff because you're not focusing on one particular habitat type or something like that. See, see that's what I'm afraid of because like, there are certain species that are local to me as well as not local to me that I know in my heart when I do find it, I'll be let down that A... I found it and B I need to find more. Mm. And, and that's what, that's kind of what I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. But again, I haven't achieved those goals. So I could, it could very well be wrong, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So there's also, I would say some of my white whales are not necessarily specific species, but specific localities. Um, I love banded rock rattlesnakes. Um, there are some mountain ranges that I've tried for them in several times and just had no luck. And I'd really like to finally knock those out. Um, are you at Liberty to say, or, uh, I mean, some of them are like really well-known, like populations that aren't specific, aren't that hard to find them in like a pyramid mountains or the organs or something. Mm-hmm. Um, That's um, Santa Rita is in Arizona. Um, that particular locality, the organs, is the most common for sale in Europe for some reason. Interesting. I, I don't know why, but that's the one. That or Davis Mountains, those are the two that you see for sale all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, those are not difficult mountain ranges to find them in. You know, I guess i just been there at, like, the wrong times or something. Um, there's also a, a couple localities of lep- LEPs, uh, modeled rock rattlesnake that I really want to see. I I grew up going to West Texas every summer. I've seen a lot of Davis Mountains ones. I've seen a lot of like the sort of more Eastern limestone phase. And there's some like weirder, more obscure localities that I'd really like to see them in. Um, when I go out to West Texas these days, like I, I avoid all of my old go-to spots, kind of like the plague. Um, I'm just trying to see more stuff in new places, some cool habitats, new localities, uh, fill in the gaps in my own knowledge. Yeah. Have you, uh, you say you've not herped Mexico yet or have you a little bit? A a tiny bit, but not that much. Um, I just wondered if you'd seen things like Ravis and Aquilis. No, I've never even been down in their range. Every year I say that I'm going to go out there and then I go out to the desert and I have like 
all of my research stuff and biological samples in my car that I can't take to Mexico. Um, or I could probably take into Mexico, but then would have a bit of a tough time bringing it back. Um, and every time that I say that I do, you know, there's some weird thing that pops up and ruins a trip. Um, I had trips planned for 2020 before COVID that I was like pretty set on and was going to go. And then COVID happened in the entire world. Yeah. Like you're not alone, man. Most just of exploded. Um, so yeah, Mexico is really, really high on my list. Um, I just got bad luck with trips getting canceled like the last minute to go down there. Of, you know, of course. Yeah, man, that's wild. But you're still killing it. Still fight, fighting the good fight, man. I love it. I'm having a good time. Um, and I get to spend a lot of my time hiking out in the middle of nowhere, looking for the coolest things on earth. So yeah. no complaints. Yeah. So are you a keeper at all? Do you have anything that you keep at home? I've, uh, I used to have a much larger collection. Um, I've downsized uh, quite a bit. I've got a couple captive bred um, globber eye um, that I got from Club King himself, Kyle. Sweet. I mean, he produces a whole bunch of really nice snakes. I've got oh, some yeah. from him. Um, I've got um, I've got a pair of uh, Saharan horned vipers, Serastes Serastes, that I love. Excellent. Um, I've got um, I've got some like captive bred green salamanders Aeneides Aeneas um, that were like captive bred at the Toledo Zoo or something in Ohio um, that they are super cool I love them to death um, I used to have a much larger collection and then just being gone for like the whole summers and stuff like yeah I realized like, oh um, there's a level of husbandry that I want to be able to give these animals and I just I had too many to give that to each of them individually so you know I, I gave a whole bunch of stuff to you know friends or people that I knew would keep them well um, and just kind of downsized back to the the few things that I was really interested in keeping um, and I don't know whenever I get done with grad school maybe I'll kind of get back into it at the moment but I haven't gotten anything new in, in quite a while um, and I don't have any plans to at the moment just I don't know it it doesn't hey, fit man. the lifestyle of disappearing for months at a time. Clobs and serastes, man. That's all you need. Exactly. They're, they're good. And the thing I like about those little vipers is, you know, they, once you have them set up in like a, a nice, cool bioactive um, setup or something like that, they, you can kind of leave them alone for a, a little while. Um, you don't have to take them out and mess with them or clean the cage or anything, which is nice. Cause you know, if you have to dip out for a month, like just, get my roommate to, to water them um, every once in a while, give them a big feed before I go and then feed them whenever I come back. That's yeah. excellent. Um, you say bioactive. I was just I keep serastes as well. I just wondered how, you, how you're setting yours up. Uh, my, my serastes aren't bioactive at all. I have them on, I've got my serastes on straight sand with like uh, naturalistic. So like little rock caves and stuff. Um, but I know that there's some people who are like, Oh, don't, don't keep them on sand. They'll, you know, ingest it whenever they eat something what? or like that but it's like what? yeah <laughs> it's like they they, they live in sand, sand, <laughs> live yeah. sand what are you talking about um, yeah 
I, I, I can send you some picks or something when we're done here, but I've, yeah. I've just got them on like some nice sand that I, I dug up from a sand hill over in East Texas. Um, and they love it. They've been doing crazy, for, great for me. They are insane you, feeders. They are. Um, do, you, do you cohabit? Are they in together or? Uh, or so my, my female was significantly smaller than the male for the past couple of years. She's now just at the age where I put them together for a couple of weeks um, last summer. Uh, they're separate right now because, you know, the, the herp room is super cold. Um, and so I, I don't hibernate them as much as my other snakes, but they definitely have like a period of dryness, inactivity, um, a little bit of downtime, but I'll, I'll put them back together in the spring, see if I can get some little babies out of it or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. And do, do you, for your, as you say, you've got clouds as well. Do you, mm-hmm. they're bioactive, are they? Or, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, they're bioactive. Um, I, I have a, a pair of captive bred Pelencio clubs that I got from, from Kyle, or I got one from Kyle. I got one from Justin Garza. Um, and like, I, I have them on dirt from the Pelencios with some, you know, nice lichen covered rock from there. Um, that's awesome. That they're captive so cool, man. Yeah. I just, I wanted like that little piece 100%. of the mountain range that I love so much that I can just like go check yeah. out and. Yeah, 100%. That's, 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 yeah, that's what I say. Seeing the habitat when we was out there, that was just, I would love to recreate that back, mm. in, back in the UK. Yeah, man. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, yeah. How lucky to be able to go and actually collect rocks from the right area. That's mad. I know. It's so cool. So cool. It's it, it's super rewarding. And, you know, having a, a small collection, I think I have like, I don't know, six snakes or something at the moment. Um, but just, you know, being able to give each one of them the amount of attention and care that I really want to, to keep them well, um, mimic their natural environment as much as I can. That's, that's really rewarding uh, to me. Yeah, and I think that's why I downsized is I had okay. a whole bunch of snakes. Um, some of them that like, you know, I'd like gotten for free or something or been given to me or, or bought like kind of on a whim that I was like, Oh, this thing's cool. But uh, after a while I was like, Oh, I'm not, you know, yeah. I, I have too many of them to, to keep how I want to. And so downsized to a, a level that I, I felt comfortable uh, maintaining up to my own very high standards. Sure. Yeah. I think we're all, we're all doing that at the minute. Um, I'm trying to downsize as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and exactly as you said, nicer cages and more time to field her. Yeah. So that's definitely it, the way forward. Yeah. It's also just like, you know, I'm, I'm a grad student. I, I live in, I'm leasing a house. I will eventually have to move out from here or something like that. Um, and when you are still moving around as much as I am at this point in my life, having venomous snakes uh, is a, another yeah. new hurdle. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah. you're like looking at like, Oh, what's the laws in this city or something or this neighborhood or, you know, all that weird stuff. So, yeah, man. you know, maybe when you, I have a house, I'll expand well. a little bit more. Yeah. Someday when I buy a house, I'm going to have a whole bunch of greenhouses for cactus and orchids, keep whatever snakes I have outdoors if I can. Um, just, I don't know, try and 
do everything right. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds fabulous. Well, hey, man, uh, where can people find you on social media? On social media, I am at Saunders Drucker. Um, My name spelled exactly like it is here. Just the nice thing about having a weird, unique name is you you always have a username. Um, uh, That's probably my most active social media. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, which if you type in Saunders Drucker, YouTube will pop up, but I've since I've been doing grad school and PhD, I've, I'll admit I've kind of let that slip a little bit, but once I have more time, I would like to get back into it and film some more videos. Um, I have a Flickr, also Saunders Drucker. Again, weird, unique name. Um, if you, if you Google Saunders Drucker, I think everything comes up. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's great, man. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. It's awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, and I'm very, very, happy. very inspirational, man. Like, oh, 100%. 100%. Uh, legit. I mean, if, if you're interested in living like a, a dirt person uh, <laughs> for a couple months a year, I guess I'm a good role model. If, you, if the uh, prospect of going 45 days straight without a shower um, doesn't interest you, then... I don't know. You might want to find someone else to look up to. <laughs> uh, depends on if the Ridge knows are out. Oh, God, yeah. Most of the time, they're not. Uh, it's a pretty good carrot on that stick, though. I'll tell you that. It is. It is. And it, it was enough for me. So yeah. I assume it'll be enough for some others. Yeah. Well, Nip Nip, is there anything else you want to cover? No, just huge thanks for Saunders for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, it was 100% inspirational. Um, my dogs are going absolutely berserk in the background for some reason. I have no idea. It's time to party. That's, right. That's what they're for. That's what they're for. Um, no, mate, it's uh, always a pleasure. Thank you for everybody for listening in to us. We appreciate you could listen to anything and you're listening to us. So thank you very much. Yeah, very much so. Thank you very Don't much. Don't forget bro. to follow me on Instagram because I'm still trying to nudge my Instagram over a thousand followers. Yep. Um, at Nipper Reed. Find him. Find me. There'll be some nice shots of Grand Canaria lizards on there over the next few days. Uh, apart from that, good night to everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.